prophet Isaiah said, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, sown, scarcely has their stock taken root. He merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Father, we're grateful that we worship together today in this assembly. A wise, strong, unfailing, faithful, sovereign Lord. What a privilege it is, and in the mystery of the assembly where we, with united voices, sing and pray and read scripture and study together, that there is that unique expression of worship and connection with you, our Lord, that is sweet and convicting and challenging and encouraging. May that be today as we worship you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good to be back with you. The good thing about a summer series is we get to take a break from our study and we get to hear choice servants from around the country come and preach. And it's always a delight for me to be well fed along with uh, you. The bad thing is, is I get rusty and, and long-winded and... Um, I don't preach my usual 25-minute sermons when I get back. In fact, you know how, the, how you feel the day before a new year of school? Do you remember that day when you study your outfit a little too long? And I looked at this tie too long. I think it matches. Uh, did the dark, at least. and uh, So a little jittery, but uh, it's so good to be here in fellowship with you. I want to commend you as an assembly, by the way. I, I do this every fall, but I mean it. Uh, You're a wonderful congregation to preach to. Our speakers all comment on it. They love everything about being here. Some of them, it's really hard to get them here. It takes a long time. I don't get return mail from some of them, but once they're here, they ask if they can come back, and uh, which is wonderful. I I appreciate your critical thinking, too. I got some emails. Hey, did what he say, you know, was that really aligned with the scripture? And And I appreciate that very much, whether I say it or we have a guest speaker saying something, you're thinking through things. I had some people ask me, well, are you going to say anything to one particular speaker or another particular speaker? No, no, I I just don't invite them back. That's usually uh, the the, the plan. (laughs) And uh, they can ask me all they want. But uh, I don't know about you, but you probably sat around and you thought, okay, who is my favorite? I'll tell you, my favorite was Robert Smith. Robert Smith, the African-American pastor who heads up pastoral theology at Beeson University, preached this house down, didn't he? If you missed Robert, you, uh, oh man, wonderful. You know, I got to tell you too, uh, somebody told me that even at 8 o'clock there was applause. At 8 o'clock. 
And here all along, I thought it was the early hour that was the problem. <laughs> now I know the unfortunate truth, but uh, we will definitely have him back and others. And it's just always a delight. And I just want to commend you for being um, so open and, and welcoming. Uh, you're responsive. You laugh at all their corny jokes. And you have practice on that during the year, don't you? And, and uh, just made them all feel so welcome. And uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege for me to introduce them to this ministry. And they typically leave refreshed and encouraged because of your influence as a congregation, which you might never think of in their lives. So I want to thank you. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Esther, and you might hear strange sounds every so often. New microphone systems are at work. Ravi Zacharias, a well-known apologist, once remarked that in all of his lectures and all of his university debates around the world, places like Princeton and Harvard and Yale and across the pond and Oxford and St. Andrews, he, he made the comment that he has never once defended the existence of God without being asked the question of evil in the world. You've probably had that same kind of question posed to you by both unbelievers and uh, believers, especially in the light of, of this anniversary in 9-11. Uh, the, the difference is the unbeliever will ask the question, and he's going to ask it after some recent outbreak of evil. But he's really trying to prove that there is no relevant personal caring God. A Christian is going to ask the question from the context of trying to figure out, trying to make sense of suffering and sovereignty. Theologians call that issue the issue of theodicy, theo, which is Greek for God, and dice, or dike, decay, from the Greek language meaning justice. In other words, theodicy grapples with the question of how a sovereign, just God can allow injustice to reign seemingly unchecked. The secular argument usually goes along four points. Point number one, evil and suffering exist in the world. Point number two, if God were all-powerful, he could prevent evil and suffering. Point number three, if God were all-loving, he would want to prevent evil and suffering. Therefore, point number four, since evil and suffering exist, God is either not all-powerful or not all-loving, or perhaps even he does not exist. Now that argument and logic seems watertight, especially when you read passages in the Bible that describe God as the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. You read that he works all things out according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. You read the descriptions of him by the psalmist David in Psalm 103, verse 8, which describes him as compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. You see, the Bible unapologetically describes God as both all-powerful and all-loving. So then how do you reconcile that kind of God with the newspaper? Our world is filled with evil. Theologians dissect evil into two compartments. They call one section moral evil. That is murder, rape, 
physical abuse, sex trafficking, stealing, political oppression, genocide, acts of terrorism that we're remembering on this day of 9-11, the 10th anniversary. And, And that's just for starters. But there's not only moral evil, but what theologians call natural evil. That is brutality within the animal kingdom, the world of nature, diseases which kill millions, tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes. You know, we just had our first one, at least in my lifetime, that I experienced. Were you around? Did you feel it too? It was strange, wasn't it? I was in my study, studying, and and all of a sudden everything began to just sort of rattle. And I thought, I wonder what that is sat there for a minute, and even my feet vibrated, and I thought, well, Marsh is probably upstairs moving a piece of furniture. (laughs) And and I thank God that she didn't ask me to go up there either, because it (laughs) must have been heavy. And it just didn't go away. I thought, that's odd. The French doors on my study began to, to open and shut. And I got up, and I walked out, and I listened for that furniture and my wife, and then it stopped. And that's just a ripple. But earthquakes hit our planet and bring great devastation. That's natural evil. Ladies and gentlemen, we are literally spinning around the sun on a planet that is drenched with evil. One author wrote that if we could could just see a fraction of the evil and suffering of the world going on at any given moment, we would collapse under the horror of it all. Another author said that the history of the human race is nothing less than the history of evil and suffering. And at every major explosion of evil, millions of people stop and ask the question, where is God? And why didn't he stop that from happening? I think just by way of illustration, the recent tsunami Of 2004, where hundreds of thousands of people died, entire cities washed off the map, a United Nations spokesman said that in terms of the areas affected from Indonesia to Kenya, it was the greatest natural catastrophe in the world's history. The carnage was inconceivable. And I use that as an illustration because of what occurred or appeared in an English newspaper which says it all. Where an editorial declared this, and I quote, Those with religious beliefs are right to consider this national disaster a test of their faith. Does it not seem that if there is a God, he is now malicious or mad or dead? For many of us, you can remember where you were on 9-11. Just those numbers strung together mean something now to the entire world. 9-11. I remember I was in Chennai, India, of all places, teaching college and seminary students when people began to run up to us and say, you, you need to go and watch the news. And we all huddled in the apartment of the president of the college and, and his wife and watched with utter shock the footage of two planes flying into the Twin Towers, office equipment. One author would later summarize it, having been there, paper and even body parts uh, rained down on the surrounding streets like a ticker tape parade. 
90 minutes later, the towers collapsed. And I remember in Chennai, India, in that apartment, watching it with just absolute shock. It would become the bloodiest day in our nation's history since the Civil War, which ended in 1865. In a very real way, one newspaper headline summarized it all when it said, and I quote, history will never be the same again. And I don't know what you were thinking, but I remember the unsettling thought to me was this country is no longer out of reach from that kind of activity where we had all sort of been in our bubble. No longer. And the bigger question, of course, which many have been asking over the last 10 years, is did God care? And if he cared, why didn't he intervene? He must be malicious or mad or dead. Evil and suffering must mean that the God of the Bible doesn't exist. Now, before you reach that conclusion... You ought to ask a few questions. First of all, why does human suffering bother any of us at all? Have you ever wondered why? If the British philosopher and evolutionist Bertrand Russell is correct, that mankind is simply an accident in the backwater of some pond, why would it matter to us if someone dies quickly or slowly, whether he dies painfully or peacefully? If the Oxford professor Peter Atkins is correct, when he said that that humanity is nothing more than a bit of slime on the planet, evolving over billions of years, why should anybody else's life then be of any remote concern to yours and mine? In fact, where did we ever come up with the concept of evil? No race other than the human race conceptualizes the existence of justice and fairness as opposed to evil and unfairness. You see, the distinctive difference in the human consciousness that causes us to care for one another and try to feed the hungry and try to clean up the mess of an earthquake and declare something as unjust or unjust or, or unfair or something or someone who is evil does not point away from the existence of God. It points toward his existence. Moral evil does not rule out God. The very fact that we can identify something as morally wrong points to a moral law standard, a moral law bearer who gave us what we know as Christians to be this conscience. You know, my dog Pixie, who is unconverted, (laughs) has no consciousness of this. My wife put up some hummingbird feeders this summer, and we've just had a delightful time watching these hummingbirds come and feed. And never once has my dog laying out in the backyard behind the fence ever thought, you know, I wonder about all the other hummingbirds in the world if they have anything to eat. The little neighbor dog that's half the size of my dog, which doesn't say much, comes over just to sniff around, and my dog from behind the fence will bark her head off, teeth bared. I mean, it's fury in a little terrier, and it's dangerous. She never once thinks that that wouldn't be a kind of thing that would be good for her testimony. (laughs) 
She doesn't have a testimony, trust me. No, why? Because there's something unique about the creation of God in us, whether one believes in God or not. And the one who asks the question, how can God exist with all the injustice of the world, points to the fact that God does exist and there is a moral standard whereby they are able to say something is wrong and something is right. We know from Scripture that His image has been stamped upon humanity, giving us the ability to discern between good and evil, fairness and unfairness. If we were slime on a planet, if we were just a curious accident from some backwater pond, we wouldn't care about each other's suffering or hunger or disaster and pain any more than my dog cares about a hummingbird. What does the Bible say about the issue of theodicy, the existence of God and evil? Well, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that death and pain and disease and calamity and even the, the, the inequality of nature's systems are all fallen because of sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that our first parents, Adam and Eve, fulfilled what God had warned them of, that there would be death, and with that dying, and, and the first murder happened in the first family, and on and on. Adam and Eve created this pollution that was dumped into the stream of humanity, and we prove that we're as polluted as they because we, like them, sin. In fact, the Bible says, for all have, what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of the image of God. Paul writes that even the world system, including nature, is fallen. He says even the universe groans. It's out of kilter. It's groaning for the day of redemption. Romans chapter 8 verse 22. The Bible also tells us that our mysterious God, as we read earlier, whose ways and thoughts are above our ways and thoughts, is sovereign over evil. He is never surprised by sin. He never wrings his hand in worry. He never calls an emergency meeting of the Trinity. By his foreknowledge, he not only saw every evil deed ahead of time, every evil plan, every evil act, every painful deed or act, from the beginning of human history to the end of human history, but he providentially even to this day, counterbalances and counteracts and moves and works invisibly in every detail so that although mankind may choose to do evil rather than justice, God overrules that evil for his own wise and holy purposes. Ultimately, God is able to make all things, including the fruits of evil things, deeds and actions, work for his ultimate purpose, Romans 8, 28, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And maybe you're thinking, now wait a second, Stephen, you mean to tell me that God knowingly allows and even plans for the fact that someone's life might endure suffering or pain or hatred or cruelty or injustice, even murder, that somehow those things in a person's life are orchestrated by God to produce God's holy purposes. You say, I can't, I can't believe God would ever allow evil to vent itself against someone else. 
God would have to be malicious, mad, or dead. Then you do not understand the crucifixion. The pain and the suffering and the anguish and the mistreatment and ultimately the murder of Jesus Christ were not accidents. They were planned. That's why the prophets could describe the suffering of the Messiah centuries earlier in Isaiah 53 and the psalmist in Psalm 22 with such detail down to the fact that men would make a moral choice for which they were responsible to cast lots for his clothing. That would be prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Every, everything in the purposes of God are planned, designed, and even the moral man is responsible for his decisions. For God's sovereignty never overrules his responsibility. Somehow in the mystery of God, his will is accomplished. There is no such thing then as an accident. Mankind made immoral and corrupt decisions as free moral agents behind their decisions of Christ, behind their unjust treatment of Christ. And his crucifixion was the plan of God determined before the universe was actually created. You can even go further, Revelation 13, verse 8. So that when the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, when the church came into being, he didn't say to the Jewish people, now look what you've done. You've ruined everything. You crucified the true Messiah. What are we going to do now? No. Instead, he stands and he preaches in Acts chapter 2, and he says these amazing words. In fact, it is probably the most powerful statement relative to theodicy in the Scripture, where Peter says this, Jesus the Nazarene was delivered over to you, which you nailed to a cross. That was your moral decision. However, it was done so by the predetermined plan of God. In other words, something bigger than you was at work all along. Something greater than you was in charge. And when Jesus Christ hung on the cross then and said, it is finished, that wasn't a cry of failure. Oh, everything got messed up. It was a cry of victory. It was a cry of fulfillment. The plan of our sovereign Lord down to the last detail was fulfilled. Everything had gone according to plan, and the plan of God isn't finished. John Blanchard writes, there's coming a day when God will make a universal adjustment. He's going to recreate, as we know from Revelation, a new earth, a new heaven. He's going to condemn those who chose their own sovereignty to live forever under their own reign in hell. And those who surrendered to the Creator God to live under His sovereignty forever, confirmed in holiness, no longer bound by a sinful nature. That's, a, that's what you call a moral adjustment. Major adjustment. In the meantime, Jesus Christ dealt with the issue of theodicy. In fact, on one occasion, a tower in Jerusalem fell over and it crushed 18 people. 18 innocent people died. And they came to him and they said, hey, you know, tell us, explain this to us. His response in Luke's gospel was to basically remind his audience that it was appointed under everyone to die, some sooner than others. And it wasn't because those 18 people were more deserving of death than those who were still alive. Jesus basically confronts his audience with the question in light of that tragedy, have you repented of your sins? Are you ready to meet the judge? 
In other words, we can't explain the infinite moving of an invisible God, but the question for us is, are we ready to meet him? The headlines today of natural disasters and moral acts of evil that are nothing less than reminders that life is brief, that life is fragile, that death is certain, but that God is sovereign over all and he will one day make all things right and new. But you, you still might be thinking, yeah, but, but why not in the meantime eradicate all the evil in the world? Okay, we understand mankind has a, has a, has a, has a moral will and they can, they can choose uh, uh, to do evil or good, but why don't, why don't we just eradicate evil? Why not, God, you, you do that? Well, for one good reason, there are many, but for one good one, for God to eradicate all the evil in the world would mean he would have to eradicate you and me. When would you like him to start? Because we carried in here with us evil and sin and corruption. And there may be things you're hiding that no one else knows, which speaks to your conscience even now. There is evil in me. Instead, until the coming day of that moral adjustment, at the end of human history, by his grace and his love, he is allowing those who believe in him to to come to surrender to him more fully and to love him more deeply. Those who do not believe, he's giving you one more opportunity today to hear the gospel and come to the cross of Christ, which is, by the way, the symbol of the greatest injustice on the planet. And yet the cross is also, at the same time, the scene of the greatest act of justice, where the holy, just wrath of God the Father burned against God the Son who took our place and in that moment on the cross bore in his body our sin. So the cross is not only a symbol of injustice, it is a symbol of justice. It was all according to predetermined plan. God was actually ordering the chaos and the corruption behind the scenes to fulfill his purposes. God is in control. Now that's easy to say. And you might think, well, we pay you to say things like that, Stephen. It's, it's, it's harder to understand. It's really difficult to live, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say that God is involved and in, 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 in sovereign over the chaos of the universe. It's another thing to say he's involved in, in ordering the chaos of my life. It's one thing to say he's sovereign over the suffering of the world. It's another thing to say he's in control of the suffering of my life. Can that be true? What if you're not aware that he's sovereign at that moment? What if it doesn't look like he's sovereign at that moment? And let me even go a step further. What if we don't deserve it? Can he be at work? even when we may not care? Was Paul really clued into spiritual reality or was he just being the optimist, you know, he is? When he wrote, if we are faithless, if and it means we will be, God is faithful. Is that true? Probably the greatest illustration 
in book form today that answers that question is a little book called Esther. It's a book that reveals that God is faithful even when his people are faithless. And we're going to start a study today, and it'll take us up to about December, Lord willing. We'll finish it. I, about 12, 13 years ago, some of you old-timers remember this, went through the book, and I've been disturbed with myself ever since because I never finished it. So I've been wanting, hoping that by now you've all forgotten everything I've said, and I'm sure you did a few months afterward, but hopefully 12 years afterward. Now, before we begin, as it relates specifically to Esther, before it opens in verse 1, let me give you the setting, all right? You need to understand that many years before Esther's story begins, because of the disobedience of the Jewish people, God had disciplined them. They were now scattered in bondage. The Jews who had lived in Jerusalem had been carted off by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He had plundered the temple, he had destroyed the city, he had knocked down the walls. Around 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar, a man by the name of Cyrus, the king of Persia, an up-and-coming kingdom, diverted the water of the river Euphrates that flowed through the capital city of Babylon. And he had a special elite band of soldiers simply weighed in and underneath the iron spikes that went down into the river and without a battle... Babylon was overthrown. Now before those soldiers showed up, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, was having a drunken orgy in his palace when a hand suddenly appeared and began to write letters on a wall. Well, that ruined the party, of course. The words didn't make any sense. So they called the prophet Daniel, who'd been carted away years earlier, out of retirement to come and interpret the message to Belshazzar. And he did. It meant effectively, you're toast. That's in the Hebrew language. <laughs> you study it. Daniel's interpretation would come true. Belshazzar was killed that very night. And the Persian Empire conquered Babylon. And Cyrus the Great ruled the largest kingdom on the planet. God was at work in this pagan king's heart. He moved it. So that Cyrus proclaimed that the Jews could begin to return back to their homeland. That was amazing. The sad thing is many of them chose not to. They were grandchildren of the exile. They'd never stepped foot in Jerusalem. They, they were Persianized. They'd bought the culture. They were the culture. They didn't bother. To many of them, the promises of God were far-fetched. To most of them, God belonged in Jerusalem. That's that, that old system you know, that no longer exists. There's not even a temple. Why bother? It's a nation that's been scattered long ago. And so here you'll have Esther intermarry with a Gentile. It doesn't matter anymore. It's ancient history. What matters now is how to get a leg up in the kingdom of Persia. That's why in the book of Esther, there's not one mention of Jerusalem. There's not one mention of the book of the law of God. There's not one mention of the temple. There's not one mention of Passover. Not one mention of the feasts. The Persian king in the book of Esther will be mentioned 190 times in 167 verses. And the name of God will not appear one time. See, he's answering the question. Is God faithful 
when his people are faithless? Is he at work and sovereign, not just in Jerusalem, but in Persia, when people don't notice, when they may not even care? You see, the question isn't so much, will God be involved in the lives of the Jews who returned? Everybody would go, well, sure. They, they, you know, they, they, they earned it. The greater question is, will God be involved in the lives of the people who stayed? Now, it will be according to God's plan that some do stay. Daniel would be one of them. In fact, he will be buried in Susa, where this king will sit. But to those who we might be tempted to think don't deserve the providence of God, will they receive it? See, Esther is the story of the Jews who'd remained in Persia. They are about to be in greater danger than they ever imagined. In fact, apart from the sovereign moving of an invisible Lord, within a matter of months, all the Jews will be dead. Thus voiding the messianic promises. And this has been the effort of Satan all along. He will stamp them out. No. God will be at work. So the book of Esther takes place when the grandson of Cyrus the Great is ruling the Persian Empire. We're introduced to him in verse 1. Just a little bit of time here to cover a few phrases. Look there. Now it took place, literally, here's what happened. In the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia... Over 127 provinces, that allows us to date this. He would have established these many provinces in his reign. Now, right away, the reader is impressed with the glory and power of Ahasuerus. These are the days when he sat on the throne. The the, the author sets us up, kind of like saying under his breath, yeah, that's what you think. This is what happened when Ahasuerus is on the throne. Now, you might notice that the The author clarifies, this is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. Now, the reason for that clarification is Ahasuerus isn't a given name. It's a throne name, like Pharaoh of the Egyptians or Caesar of the Romans. Ahasuerus is the throne name. It simply means chief of rulers. His Greek name, historians inform us, was Xerxes. That name also is significant. It means sovereign over men. You could also translate Xerxes, hero among heroes. See, the the point is obvious. Right away, you're being informed with who's in charge. Now, history records for us that Xerxes was petty, conniving, promiscuous, arrogant, brutal, rash, In fact, one inscription was discovered where Ahasuerus wrote of himself, and I quote the inscription, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of this entire earth, far and near. He's a humble fellow, wasn't he? Herodotus, a Greek historian who lived and wrote just after the Persian Empire was defeated, wrote that Xerxes was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings He was ambitious, ruthless, and jealous. When he was offered, and I'll give you this by way of an introduction to him, that's all we have really time for. 
But when he was offered on one occasion a gift of several million dollars in our economy today by a man named Pythias to support his upcoming military campaign, which will take place between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. He was so moved that this man would give him such a fortune that he returned the fortune and with it gave him gifts. However, when a few months later, Pythias, the same man, petitioned Xerxes to allow his oldest son to remain home rather than go with Xerxes on his military campaign, Xerxes became so enraged that he ordered that son cut into two pieces. And when he marched off with his army to war, he had the army march between those two pieces. When Xerxes marched on Athens with an army that was far superior, vastly outnumbered the Greeks. They were early on temporarily held up in a pass, flanked on one side by the sea and on the other by a mountain. And and the Spartan commander in that famous pass by the name of Leonidas, who also became famous with his 300 kept Xerxes and his army at bay long enough for Athens to be more safely evacuated until they all died. In that same expedition, Xerxes attempted to cross a river and needed two bridges built for his huge army. And they were built by his engineers. However, the night before he was to cross over with his army, which would have changed the history of Europe, a storm came up, which they attributed later on to the gods, and we know which one and swept those bridges away. Xerxes was so incensed and so angry, of course everything was deified, he ordered that a soldier beat the river with a whip 300 times. He wasn't especially bright at that particular moment, but he had the river beat while his other soldiers shouted and cursed at the water, and then Xerxes had the engineers who built the bridges beheaded. This is the man Esther will marry. He also ordered a pair of shackles to be thrown into the river to symbolize his sovereignty over the water. He was still in charge after all, even though he had failed to cross it. On his way back, having been unable to defeat the Greek city-states, which will one day defeat him, he wintered in Sardis, where he tried to seduce his sister-in-law, but was rebuffed. He would later have that sister-in-law and her husband, his own brother, tortured to death. So when you read in verse 1 that Ahasuerus reigned from India to Ethiopia, it's telling you that he reigned over an empire upon which the sun never set. And it also tells you in verse 2, if you look there, that he is sitting on his royal throne in, in Susa. Susa was one of his three palaces. He would spend the rest of his life basically going from palace to palace involved in building programs and his harem. He never again marched to battle with his army, made no significant contribution on the planet, really. He was all tied up with himself. But it would be in Susa where Xerxes' son would one day sit, faithfully served by a cupbearer named Nehemiah. It's very likely that Nehemiah and Esther knew each other. I'll show you that in the days ahead. But Susa was a, was a playground 
for the rich and famous. It was the place to be. If you could afford real estate in Susa, you were, you were somebody with its pools and its fruit trees, its, its servants, its wildlife, its hanging gardens. And Xerxes, he announces, was the king of kings, the greatest king in all the earth. Oh, Herodotus, the historian, records that the riches of his kingdom were legendary. In fact, the tribute he received from the subjugated nations around him totaled more than 700 tons of gold and silver annually. His kingdom included modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. Literally millions of people speaking dozens of languages all owed their allegiance to their sovereign Lord and King, the one who said he was the King of Kings. Well, that's what he thought. And you see how the writer at the very outset intentionally underscores what seemed to be important, who seemed to be preeminent, who seemed to be in control. In fact, several times in these opening verses, we're told that Ahasuerus reigned. He sat on his throne. The people in verse 4 are going to be given a display of his glory and his great majesty. But I want you to know that Xerxes is in the palm of God. His heart is in the hand of God, and God is going to turn it whithersoever he will. Xerxes even though a pagan king, even though his actions and decisions were evil and immoral, even still there is a sovereign hovering just above the throne of this king. And that's who becomes the story's hero of heroes. You see, ladies and gentlemen, a hidden God does not mean an absent God. He may be invisible, but he is infallible. He may be unusually quiet, but he is in control. He may be ignored by the kingdoms of this earth, but his will is never frustrated. He may be unsuspected. He may be unnoticed, but he remains unconquerable. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, wrote a man who would be buried in Susa by the name of Daniel. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and Daniel had seen kingdoms come and go. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even though mankind has always asked that question, what have you done? And what is God doing? Whatsoever the Lord pleases, that he does in heaven and on earth. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know at the outset that the book of Esther has been given to us, not to enamor us with Esther, but to enamor us with God. We're given the inside story, not to impress us with the cleverness of Esther and Mordecai, but to impress us with the infinite wisdom of this invisible God. 
And it is my prayerful intention and desire that after we have finished this little drama called Esther, that you and I will not be in love with her. We will be in love with him. We will not be in awe of them. We will be in awe of him to whom alone belongs all praise and all glory. Well, with that as my introduction, I shall close. Father, any true handling of your word diminishes us and increases you. It makes us smaller, and yet in that we find even greater security, for it has made you magnificent. And I know, perhaps more than many here, the effort that went from the very beginning of this hour to the ending of this hour, how it is intentionally planned so that you are glorified and exalted and worshipped. And though there is the mystery still in our minds that are finite between sovereignty and suffering, your word makes it very clear that your sovereignty is in control of suffering and evil and every nation and every king which boasts of his power is nothing more than a pawn in the hand of you, our sovereign Lord, making his own decisions, yes, of which he'll be responsible and we with him, the kings of the earth. But what glory to recognize that all of it fits within your predetermined plan so that your purposes will never become unhinged, stayed, or ruined. And so we can do one of two things as we leave. We can stubbornly resist what we've learned again and afresh to be true. Or we can yield afresh to you. Could we do anything less? Would we want to do anything more? And so we as a congregation, redeemed by the blood of Christ for those who've believed, end where we started. You are God alone. And all the people said, Amen.